Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. for a hamburger but you want filet and then the misconception is it's the designer's job to make filet out of hamburger but it's not hi everyone i'm jamie i'm amy and this is clever today we're talking to cory grocer cory grocer is an architect product designer educator and chief of a boutique multidisciplinary design agency the agency cory grocer and associates is based in pasadena but global in reach having produced work for Disney, Ford, Samsonite, Hyundai, and Bentley, among others, as well as recently opening an outpost in Dubai. A professor at Art Center, Corey is active in educating and shaping the next generation of designers, and himself. So let's talk to Corey. My name's Corey Grosser. I live in Pasadena, California, and... I own a design studio. We do architecture, we do furniture and products, and we do graphics and strategy. I think I do it because it's all I ever wanted to do. And I think I'm pretty good at it, and it just seems to be my passion. Well, all right. Well, if it's all you ever wanted to do, we want to deconstruct that a little bit and go all the way back to the beginning. Let's get the lowdown on your upbringing. Sure. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? We always like to hear about your family dynamic and what kinds of things fascinated you as a kid. Yeah. If you looked in the dictionary and looked up like all American kid, I think you <laughs> would see, see me. That was kind of my upbringing. I grew up in a small town called Fairport. It's outside of Rochester, New York, where Kodak and Xerox are or were. And, you know, I think I had a pretty idealized kind of childhood. You know, in high school, I played football and I had a flat top and, you know, I gave my girlfriend a varsity jacket. <laughs> and so it was, I think, very, very middle America. Oh, my gosh. Did you sweat apple pie out of your pores? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit, a little bit. Uh, no, but it was actually a, a great place to grow up. It's so different now with my kids out here in LA, um, you know, but we used to run around and, yeah, you know, bike ride and up and down the street. And I would show up my friend's house and walk in the front door like I was part of the family. And uh, it's just different now. But uh, it was a good place to grow up. I liked to build things when I was a kid. And my grandfather gave me a set of blocks when I was very young, probably three or four. And I would play with them all the time in my room. And I think maybe someone at some point said, hey, you should be an architect. And so from that moment on, which is longer than I remember, I, I was like, okay, I'll be an architect. That sounds pretty cool. That sounds good. So I think somewhere along the line, someone put that bug in my ear and I guess it just kind of stuck. 
Well, obviously it stuck, but then you had to grow it somehow. And did you have parents that were supportive of that idea? What did your parents do? And did you have siblings? What's the dynamic like at home? It sounds pretty wholesome, but (laughs) things are never as they seem. (laughs) No, they're not. Sure. So, you know, my mom owned a ballet studio. She was a professional ballerina before I was born. And my dad was a salesman or still is. And I have one brother. He's a very smart guy, a scientist. He works for Merck Pharmaceuticals, and and he lives in Princeton, New Jersey. But my mom was super passionate about dance and ballet and also teaching. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was a huge influence in my life. And I think my father, I would say he really wanted my brother and I to do the best that we possibly could. And so it was a household where we were pushed to do our best, I think. And... That was kind of how it came along. When I was a kid, I played football, of course, hence the varsity jacket. And then I ski raced in the winter. So it's cold there and it's snowy and there's not a lot to do in the winter. So my brother and I got into ski racing and my parents would take us on the weekends all around the state of New York to race. And that was kind of how our our winners went. I encourage like for my kids, you know, if they can find sports or music or something that they're into and, and to have a passion outside of school. And, and I think, you know, my parents expected that I would also do well in school. And so I tried. So besides the sports, how does your creativity come out? Were you making things when you had time? Were you drawing? You know, do you have any stories about things you made or experiences you had that were more of the creative spirit, I guess? Yeah, I was thinking about this a little bit. And since we're close to Halloween, We did this weird thing as a family when I was a kid. We would enter like Halloween costume making competitions. (laughs) And my mom, who I think, you know, is really creative and she's kind of like a maker, I would say, or was a maker at the time. We would make these elaborate Halloween costumes and then there would be a parade in the center of town or whatever. And I have a whole someplace in a box. There's a whole pile of trophies from her winnings. So, for example, one Halloween, they took a 50-gallon drum and painted it red and then very carefully drew the Coca-Cola symbol on. And I put my shoulder pads on from Pee Wee football. And, you know, I walked in this parade as a bottle of Coca-Cola. So each (laughs) Halloween, we definitely kind of had this experience where we made things. And I think besides that, a big influence for me throughout my career and what probably kept me going was my grandfather. And he was a machinist. And, you know, this is such a new term, this idea of the maker, but he was definitely a maker. And when I was a kid, he, I don't know if you guys remember, there was that plastic car bed that you could have. It was kind of rotationally molded plastic and you would put your mattress in. Oh, yeah. Uh Yeah. You'd buy it at Toys R Us. But I didn't have anything like that. I had like a custom wood boat bed, bells, whistles, working lights, you know, a kind of a front end that opened up to become my toy box. So, you know, I think I was around that kind of making idea from a small age. Yeah. And getting celebrated for it. It sounds like if you have a (laughs) box full of trophies and you grew up in a boat bed, it sounds like that was something that was very valued in your home. So I have a quick question about your adolescence. Did you have to struggle between being kind of a jock and a creative person who likes to dress up? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Like, no, um, and I think it's served me well throughout my life, but I just think I'm kind of one of these 
one of these people that can kind of blend in with the crowd. Yeah. I can talk football or, you know, we can talk minimal artist or whatever. Like I, I'm pretty comfortable in different social situations, I would say. And are you comfortable sharing your deepest thoughts and feelings? <laughs> Usually, usually. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's good. No, and I, I said that sort of jokingly, but I mean, I do think there's a real value to being sensitive and being comfortable with that and able to sort of navigate that space as well as, you know, talking sports and design. Well, I cried profusely at my brother's wedding when I was the best man. So it was a very snotful Aww, occasion. So. <laughs> sweetheart. <laughs> But yeah, I think I'm a, a relatively sensitive person, I suppose. I think as I grow older, and I suppose we can talk about it more as we get into to work and design, but you know, I think the most important word for me in my vocabulary now, both as a teacher and as a designer, is this idea of empathy. You know, trying to put yourself in other people's shoes. And and I take it really seriously, but I think, you know, it's taken a long time to get there. Mm. So you were interested in architecture, thought you wanted to be an architect. You were building these or making these really wonderful costumes with your family. And then at some point, you were ready to go off to college and you studied architecture at the State University of New York in Buffalo and then industrial design at Art Center. But I guess I want to know a little bit more about like what that path was like for you. Did you have mentors? Were there people you looked up to? Basically, like, what were your college years like studying all of those things? So I think it's kind of when this all started to turn for me. But as I said, I think I just accepted that I was going to be an architect. I don't know. And that was just the thing. So it was always the plan. And I took, you know, classes in high school, drafting and what they called pre-engineering, which really was kind of a design class, but they didn't call it that. And, you know, architecture seemed like the thing if you wanted to do design or you wanted to be creative, you know, that was a good path. And Buffalo is the only school in New York that has architecture that's a public mm. university. So, you know, it was an hour and a half from my house. And so that's where I went. And then a funny thing happened during architecture school, uh, I think was maybe a pivotal moment in my career. You know, I was in Buffalo and and I saw getting to design cool buildings seemed like it was for old men. Ah. And I think the people that I met were all old and, you know, like they had spent a career working up to it. And I think I was in a pretty impatient kid, you know, I was like, Hey, like, I don't want to wait till I'm 60 to design something cool. I want this all to happen now. And I, you know, I remember I would make my models and I would be so proud. Like it was really about the form of the building. And then I had my review maybe halfway through and the teacher's like, Hey, you know, you never like photograph your models as if you're inside the building. And I was like, yeah, I mean, don't you see how cool this, the shell of this building is, <laughs> you know? So I was more concerned with making the models and, and kind of th this idea of developing form and form making than I was in what it was like to be inside of buildings, which ironically is the exact opposite approach that I do now. And then I would go to the library, uh, I'm dating myself a little here, but just about when Google was or, or Yahoo was coming about or whatever, the beginning of the internet. But I would go to the library and look through all these design magazines. And I started to see kind of these designers from Europe on the cover of magazines and they were young and it just, it looked cool. And, and for lack of a better word, it just looked a little more glamorous than architecture. And I was like, Hey, you know, I think 
I think I can do this. I think I want to do this because this seems cool and faster and fun. And, and I don't have to wait until I'm, you know, old to design something. So these two kind of moments in, in architecture school, when I started to really question whether I wanted to be an architect. And so I went to my teacher who was actually an industrial designer and I had a chat with him about this. And he said, Hey man, like you, you have like a year left of architecture school. I think you should, I think you should finish. And then you could go, you know, if you want to go back and do something else and be a different type of designer, you can do that, but why don't you keep at it? And so that's what I did. I, I finished out, but I knew at the time that I, I thought maybe my passion was elsewhere. And this was probably the first time in my life that I realized maybe I didn't want to be an architect. Mm. Isn't that funny, though? I mean, you might be realizing that you don't want to be an architect, but none of that education went to waste. Like it still seeped in and informed you. And I'm sure you use it every day. Yeah. Our architecture school is, is weird. It's, it's, um, it's not what you think, you know, in some ways, depending on where you go, it's, you learn technical things, of course, but you, you also learn, it's the beginning of learning how to be creative in a mm. different way. Mm-hmm. Well, and your impression as a, as a youth was that you don't get to design anything till you're an old man, but in actuality, you're probably doing a lot of drafting and designing, just not really seeing your own buildings built until you're an old man. <laughs> Maybe my ego got the whole hold of me. I'm You're like, really no, sure. I need to influence the outside world now. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm wrong. You know, I don't know. And and I remember in Buffalo, we were always like looking what was happening in California and the kind of the work that was being done. And you know, it seemed more avant-garde and and maybe a little bit edgier than than what you know was happening where we were. And a lot of this too is, I think you guys make a good point. It's the perception of someone that's 20 years old or 19 years old and just still trying to figure it out. So I I don't know what's truth and what's just my perception at the time. Sure. But I mean, it almost doesn't matter because the perception of the 20 year old is what led you on the path. So the next step on your path was to get a degree in industrial design, correct? Well, actually, I uh, I worked so after architecture in the summers. I would I worked for the building department where I grew up, and uh, I was a building inspector. So I would go around and see, you know, like swimming pools and decks being built, and additions and houses, and you know, I would kind of go in and you know see if they were basically building them the right way, which was a very difficult job for a young kid in architecture school or just finished with architecture school. Because, you know, the contractors were like, who's this petulant little <laughs> kid telling right. us how to build Who's coming something? here to like find all our flaws and tell right. us what we did wrong? Yeah, yeah. nobody exactly. likes the inspector. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, the worst. it's like a most hated job, right? right. It's like right up there with the DMV people, I think. <laughs> but it was good in a few ways for me because I had to get out there and I had to learn how to be, I was a, ironically a relatively shy kid, which is hard to believe, I guess, at this point. But you know, I had to learn how to be assertive. Uh, I learned a lot about how buildings are put together, which you don't always learn in architecture school. And I saved money. Basically, I saved for my first year at Art Center. I think that was like a pivotal year. I think I might have been the one of the youngest, if not the youngest, one of the youngest licensed building inspectors in the state of New York. I passed the civil service exam while I was still, while I was still in architecture school. So, you know, it was... It's funny. It's a, cu- a couple of year, a year and year and a half of my life. That's so different now. But, you know, I think driving around from project to project, I just knew that I wanted to do something more and, and kind of that those library sessions, I think I had quite of ambition, you know, at the time. And, and so I saved up money and 
Uh, I looked at a few different schools and I, I went out to Art Center, which when you grow up in Rochester and Buffalo, is it might as well be half a world away, truthfully. But, you know, I was kind of taken by the building. It's this, you know, just long, black, amazing international style structure. It's all white on the inside and kind of raw and blank. And I just kind of had this instinct that this was this is what I should do and this is where I should go. And I guess I'm still here in Pasadena today. Yeah, you never left. But let's talk about that. So from studying at Art Center to the professional world, what were the first few steps like for you in terms of becoming a real deal designer as opposed to a design student? Yeah, I think I took Art Center very, very seriously, maybe too seriously. You know, I was maybe too, I was too wrapped up in it, perhaps too committed isn't the word, but maybe a little bit too driven. So it was kind of a tough time, I would say. What do you mean too driven? Like too hard on yourself? Yeah, sure. I think I struggle. We can start the deep stuff now. But (laughs) yeah, I totally think uh, I've had to learn to be less difficult on myself. You know, and I grew up, I think, with kind of expectations and it never like dawned on me that I wouldn't be able to do the things that I wanted to do. And I think at times in my life, that's that's been a, a difficult and challenging journey. And then also when you go to architecture school and then when you go to Art Center, especially at the time that I was there, they also teach you these things too. You're, so you're taught to try to be perfect and you're taught to be super rigorous and you're, you know, and you're taught that above all else, you know, you need to get this right. So that was kind of my art center experience. So on one hand, it was incredibly crucial to the tools and the skills that I gained. And I would say my ability jumped, made tremendous leaps, but it was also hard because, you know, I was chasing down, I think, unreasonable expectations of myself. Mm-hmm. When my career finally happened after Art Center, I started the career right out of Art Center. You know, I would, I was getting in magazines, and you know, magazines were still the press that everyone wanted back then. And I never felt satisfied. I was like, okay, well, why? You know, that's great, but why isn't it this magazine? And why? You know, so it took me a long time to kind of slow down and say, hey, like this is okay. You know, you're doing well, because I just constantly had this feeling that I wasn't doing enough. It wasn't going fast enough and, and all the expectations I think I had built up for myself. Yeah. Well, you're not good enough for a grocer. <laughs> None of us are. You know? <laughs> no, I mean, that is hard, though. And I feel like I, I, that was my college experience, too. It's like it's where I learned how to be so hard on myself that I was actually less useful yeah, to the yeah. world, you yeah. know, and then you have to figure out, OK, let me back this up a little bit. No person is capable of perfection. I'm only capable of doing my best. Where is my best? Because if I push myself beyond it, I'm breaking down. And if I push myself up to it, I'm growing. But finding that line is hard and usually requires crossing it a few times in order to know where it yeah, is. I, I think, you know, I, I, I talk about this stuff now, but this is a very recent, realiz- you know, this, this realization for me is five years old, not, you know, not 15 years old. You were disparaging old men before, but I'm telling you, maturity is worthwhile. <laughs> it's got real value. Right. right. But, you know, on the on the flip side, it's tough because it also kind of propelled my early career. And then, you know, I, I had just I just had a belief and a confidence that I could do it the way that I wanted to do it. And I think that happened. But, you know, it's also cool. And I and I tell my students now, you know, 
figure out what you want to do and then work towards it, but also be open to, you know, new opportunities and new things that kind of may unravel themselves in front of you. Mm. Like as designers, we can't control, we can't design everything. We can't design the unfolding of our lives. And that's a tough lesson for somebody who likes to have influence over every aspect of the built world. And How do you know that was me? <laughs> 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 yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, but let, let's talk about your professional practice. Like tell our listeners the types of work you do in Corey Grosser and Associates and what kinds of projects have been milestones in the evolution of, of Corey yeah, Grosser. So- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called mouse parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole and things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. 
This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. To go backwards a little bit, because I think the beginning of the the studio is is kind of it, in between Art Center and the beginning of the studio is it, it sets the foundations for what we're doing today. But you know, I I I knew the day I got to Art Center that I wanted to have my own studio and and kind of be an independent designer, and that was the path I was going to take. I was really interested in furniture and lighting and kind of similar lifestyle products because I studied architecture and I wanted to be an architect. And then I was really into products, you know, like electronics and and small things. But I thought that furniture was kind of a, it was a good meeting spot between those two kind of extremes. Mm -hmm. And so when I graduated from Art Center, I applied for the the Salone Satellite at the Milan Furniture Fair, which is still kind of a young, it's a place where you apply and if you're accepted, you get a small booth and you bring your stuff there and you see what happens. And it's a hot showcase of emerging designers. Yes. And I was, I think in the third, it was only the third one. So to date myself a little bit, I think it was the third installment. So I've got a part-time job at Art Center working in the shop so I could build my pieces. And I kind of did my best to get everything there. And, you know, it's a, it was a really big deal for me because I had never been out of North America. It was my first time in Europe <gasps> or anywhere really outside of Canada. And I remember my parents came and my brother came. My ex-wife was there too. We kind of came out of the train, the subway right next to the Duomo. So the first thing I saw of Europe was the side of the Duomo. And I'll never forget that feeling Wow! because it was overwhelming, but also super cool. And I was super excited. I was very eager. Anyway, I put my furniture there and 
I designed some some big like audio speakers. I think the people with booths next to me still to this day probably hate my guts because <laughs> I forgot all the CDs. I and, and I only had like three CDs, so for the entire oh, eight days, no. I played the thing over and over and over again. <laughs> so. <laughs> Wait, what did you play? I want to know. Oh, it's like Groove Armada and other things like that that were you okay. know, like heavy. Like <laughs> So we're talking like 2002, exactly. something like this? <laughs> yes, exactly <Okay>. 2002. <laughs> you got it, precisely. And, <laughs> and what happened was my furniture, you know, it was a little bit naive. It was, it was super American, I would say. You know, it was kind of inspired by, you know, the 50s and 60s. It was, it was super retro, but... What happened with, with the music is kind of young students and whatever, they would come and hang out in my booth. And, you know, the, the, the booth just generated a lot of, there was always people in it. Mm. And so that kind of helped. And that's trade show currency. Right. Exactly. Yes. Much to the dismay of my, of my neighbors that have <laughs> had to hear Groove Armada for eight days straight. <laughs> So you put your stuff out there and that you hope that someone important in the Italian design industry is going to come to your booth and, and say something to you. That's what's really going on at this show. You know, you're just hopeful. And that's what happened. You know, like a few people came by and, and I remember at the time, it's so silly now, but I remember thinking, yeah, I got this. This is going to be easy, you know, and 10 years of like carrying my portfolio around Italy, I, I realized it wasn't nearly as easy as I thought it was going to be. But I guess in a way that gave me confidence and uh, it said, okay, I can do what I want to do. It might take a while and, and it might not be easy, but I think I can do this. And it was really important for me at the time. You know, there weren't a lot of American designers going to Europe and trying to work with the European companies. That was my dream. That's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be you know, a global designer. And I guess in some weird way, I was thinking back to those magazine articles about these other designers that I read about and saying, hey, can I do that? And so, you know, that's the first stage of, of my career. And, and to this day, it's evolved. But, you know, we still do that type of work. We still, you know, make design furniture and lighting and accessories, you know, for royalties. So that's, that's still a big part of our, our work. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And yeah, I'm sure your booth mates or <laughs> booth neighbors have Groove Armada <laughs> carved into their subconscious. But you bring up something that I think is important, which is that there is a glamorous appeal to being an internationally recognized design star. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just feel like rather than trying to pretend like we're not feeling that pull of the glamorous life, we should probably just acknowledge it. But here's what I want to get to with you, because you're doing all these different types of projects, which is also very glamorous, but you're also a very passionate pedagogue. You're an educator, and you have been since you were a student. Am I right? Well, I think about five years into my career, I started teaching at Art Center. Okay. And I think when I left Art Center, like I said, it was pretty hard time for me, actually. I didn't think I would go back. You know, I thought I may have visit someday, but I didn't know I would be back in five years. That was really a shock. And I remember walking in the building on my first day and smelling clay because when they design cars, they use this modeling clay and they put the clay in these, these warming ovens so they can sculpt it. And I remember walking in and just smelling that clay and, and thinking like, what are you doing here? You know, like, why, why are you back here? <laughs> 
Corey, we revisit the challenging chapters in our life so that we can remake them in a more productive way. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm not sure. I, I really, I'm, I'm not. There sure. you are. You're back to design the student experience. <laughs> but I, you know, I was, I, I felt like I grew a lot at Art Center, so I was like, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. And Art Center has, uh, we've, we've done this class with Bernhardt Design, where I think there's been about ten of them, where Jerry Helling comes to the school and we run a class and basically those students get to have their pieces put into Bernhardt's line. And there's been a lot of successful pieces over the year. So I had an opportunity to co-teach this class with a gentleman named David McCarsky, who's the chair of the department. And it seemed like a pretty cool opportunity because, you know, at Art Center, it's, it's also a professional kind of it's a professional curriculum or it's just, we're supposed to train professionals, right? So part of going in there was, Hey, I'm, I'm working, like I'm out here, I'm doing it. I can share some of this. I have things to add here. And that was, I guess, the beginning of my idea of being a teacher is that, okay, I can share what I'm doing in the studio and these things can kind of commingle a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's a really valuable part of the curriculum is just the real life professional experience that you can bring to the table, in addition to helping to sort of grow and nurture the creative expression and the design thinking and all of the tools and skills. That window of being able to say, here's what it's like out in the real world. Here's what clients are going to be expecting. Here's how you navigate this tricky scenario. Yeah, that's one of my, I would say, my favorite parts about teaching Really? Yeah. I love if a student asks me, like, how am I going to make money? You know, like, how am I going to live? Man, uh, I wish this, I had asked that when I was in school. <laughs> with this career. And I say, okay, well, here's your choices, you know, and here's how. You know. So that is a cool part. I think teaching is hard for me. You know, the studio has gotten busier and we've grown and I'm a single dad now. I have two beautiful young girls. So it's a lot to balance. So, you know, I, I maybe don't teach as much as I used to, but, you know, I, I usually have one or two classes per term. Okay. It is, I guess, integrated with what I feel professionally or think about professionally. And I really just try to help the students get ready to be the best creative people that they can be to kind of unlock their own creative power. You know, I don't believe in teaching students process. And if you do this, if you start a day and do all of this and get to be, this is what's going to happen. But I believe, hey, like, what do you think you're good at? What are you passionate about? What do you want to do? And how can I help you develop that? So that I, I think that's my approach to teaching. And as we talked about before, I think it's changed a little bit now. You know, I'm, uh, I'm more empathetic to my students and I'm maybe I'm a little bit easier teacher than I was in the early years. You know, I'm not demanding my students make perfect things like I used to try to make, but... You're not as hard on them as you are on yourself. Yeah. But I think that took 10 years of teaching to get there too. Sure. So I think teaching's really changed for me in the last five years. I'm going to ask you about Dubai, but before we even fly halfway across the world, I, I want to go back to this idea of empathy. And you said like you are becoming an easier teacher. You feel like you've accepted, I guess, your place in, in the world. I just want to know like what triggered that. I'm really curious to hear more about the shift in your perception of everything. Well, I got divorced and spent a year in therapy. I, I think if you're truly a creative person, are really these things different? 
are you one person at work and this idea of being creative and then you go home and you're a different person? I think if you're really driven to be creative and truly a creative person, I think these things are vastly intertwined. I think it would be disingenuine to say that like these things are separate. I think they're completely, completely aligned. And it's one of the difficult things about being a creative person, whether you're an, an artist or a musician or an architect or whatever you are, like these things, it, it, it becomes, it's not only what you do, it's, it's also part of who you are. And, and I think they are quite well connected. They're so well connected. And it's, it's interesting to me that like getting to that place of a understanding that, and then the journey of fully integrating all those aspects of yourself is a is a lifelong journey. But finally, recognizing that integration is the goal. Yeah, that's integration is a nice word. I think when you become a parent too, this can also happen. So, you mm. know, it doesn't always have to be a crisis. But I think if you are a parent uh, or you choose to be a parent, I think that can really change your perspective. You know, and and how you how you want your kids to navigate the world and what you you know what you mm -hmm. want for them. I you know. These ideas of the expectations that I put myself, I tr really try not to put that on my kids, I, you know, because I, I, I definitely want them to, to be a little bit, I would say, more integrated than I was, if, if you want to use that word. It's a double-edged sword, you know. It's the thing that, that, that propelled my career, I would say, and that, but it also caused me difficulties, too. Yeah, if you put the wrong gas in the tank, you might still get there, but you wear <laughs> right, the machine right, out right. on the way. Yeah. So, you know, I think of myself as a designer and I think of myself as a father and I think about myself as a teacher and I just do my best day by day to kind of balance these things as best as I possibly can. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing a pretty good <laughs> job. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. All right. So we're back in the plane and we're flying to Dubai. So what what are you doing there? What is going yeah, on with so Dubai? Let me back up a little bit and just kind of set the groundwork for Dubai. Yeah. We were a product design studio. We are furniture and products. Started out with Milan. And then early in my career, I started doing some design strategy work. I got a good opportunity at Ford. So in, in the beginning of my, uh, as I was doing kind of this European, you know, independent designer. When I was on that trek, I started working kind of for bigger companies as a consultant, as a creative consultant, as what I would call a design DNA consultant. And the studio split into two modes. So we had this furniture and, and it's kind of, let's say, small company mode. So you know, a lot of the furniture companies in Europe are still family owned. I mean, they're kind of getting bigger now, but let's say at that time they were really family owned. And then I was taking some of the lessons that I was working on in furniture and I was trying to apply them to big companies. So we worked for Ford and we worked for Hyundai and we worked for Bentley Motors. And then I started working for Disney. And in the beginning, it was a lot of car companies because there's a lot of car companies or there were a lot of design studios in Southern California. So you know, that became kind of this thing. So we had kind of this strategy side and then we had the furniture side. And then probably about seven or eight years ago, I had been doing some st both strategy projects and kind of design projects for Disney. And they asked if I thought I could design a small brainstorming space next to Disneyland in a building that Frank Gehry designed actually. And although I wasn't a working architect and I had to go way back to being a building inspector to remember how things were put together, you know, I was like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I'm ready to try this out. Let, let's see. And so I was kind of tapping into that, you know, being a kid and wanting, wanting to design, you know, spaces. So we did it and it, it came out pretty good. 
it came out nice. And then they asked us to do another and another and another, and it kind of snowballed. And so before I knew it, the studio was split, basically split into these three kind of these three areas, which is the way we work now. So we have space design, furniture and products, and then you know, strategy work. So anyway, over the last five years, this has been the, the big change in my life and the, and the life of the studio is doing mostly interior architectures. We've done stores and, and some exhibition design, corporate headquarters and whatnot. But, you know, it was kind of a mid-career change, I would say. And I got a call maybe a year and a half ago or so. And it was a very strange call. It was one of these calls where like, I thought it was a prank really like, or someone, I thought it was, you know, someone <laughs> trying to sell me the King of Nambia was, was releasing his gold and, and you should send a million dollars here. <laughs> uh, so I almost hung up the phone, but for some reason I was like, you know, I, I do, let me just hear this out. And it was a gentleman from Dubai who wanted to make a partnership with a Western designer and specifically a designer from California to be involved in creating a new studio in Dubai to do architecture. And over a year and a half of kind of thinking about it and, and working out the details, this is what's happening. So we'll have an office in a really nice area of Dubai and kind of one of these two giant towers that still, when I see the photos, makes me makes me laugh a little bit. <laughs> Wait, okay, so you're opening an office in Dubai based on yes. a blind date phone call? Like, what yeah, no, happened after that? You guys have to fall in love before no, you get into business no, you just together. To How courage. did you know this was a fit? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that, that or too. blind stupidity, one of, the, one of the two. In five years, <laughs> we can have this podcast again, and I'll tell you which one it was. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're creating this office in Dubai, which wasn't really, um, you know, we're pretty busy in the California studio and we're really trying to grow and, and, and trying to do more and to try to do the best we can. So this wasn't really a, a plan or a, you know, an ambition in any way. It was just an opportunity that presented itself. And we talk a lot in the studio about we have a very tight DNA, like our own DNA. So, you know, if you hire our studio, there's a certain philosophy and there's a certain aesthetic and a certain kind of set of tools and rules that you probably have to match up with what you want to do, or we probably won't be a good fit for each other. Mm -hmm. So part of this was, can we take what we're doing and our, our philosophy and our aesthetic style and our ideas about design and can we jump cultures and see like, what will it be like someplace else? So in that sense, it's really exciting and quite challenging to figure out how to have a, a studio so far away, but still have it retain kind of the, the DNA and also kind of the quality that we try every day to achieve. Well, that sounds very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. You guys want to come to Dubai with me? Yeah. Yes. I was just absolutely. talking to somebody the other day about that. So Dubai Design Week is November. I know. I know. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff going on there. And I'm giving a couple lectures <laughs> and we'll see how it goes. I'm in. I want to jump into your creative process because you, you just mentioned that your office has a specific type of DNA. So how would you characterize your design philosophy? What is that DNA? Well, I think, you know, since we work on projects of many different scales, 
I think it would be my my idea was okay, we can do all these types types of projects, but there has to be some thread that kind of holds things together. Or this just isn't going to work. So you know, we have a, a it's it's I would say it's like a California minimal kind of idea if I have to put a air quotes around it, but we're super influenced by California. And I think California is an amazing place to, to be a designer. And I feel very lucky to be working here, but also we're trying to do, it's like minimalism plus, right? We're trying to figure out what the essential things are and then do one thing that makes people smile or one thing that's a little bright, one thing that's for lack of a better word that has California sunshine, you know? So, so it starts out quite stark and quite austere. And then, you know, we, we give it some sunshine. And I think that that's the zone as a studio that we, we try and operate in. Yeah. I love that picture you painted because I don't want any extra bells and whistles, any (laughs) bullshit. At the same time, I don't want something that's totally cold and austere and devoid of personality. So where, where is that land? And I like your uh, description of something that's minimal, but with a little bit of California sunshine. It's also a real thing too, you know, if when you grow up in Western New York, you know, and this, they have seasonal affective disorder, which is a real thing. And then out here, you know, it's sunny most days. It's hard not to, I think it, it has a good spirit. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it, it seems like it would be easy to connect to. Yeah. I had this, uh, I bought myself a Paul Smith suit. It was like, it was years ago, but I was so proud when I, when I got, <laughs> got this suit, you know, and I don't know, it had like the Paul Smith stripe on the inside, you know, the cut is pretty minimal. It's pretty classic. So wet, but then it had this colorful stripe on the inside. And I just, I always love that, that idea that, you know, it, it, it's minimal, but you have this one thing that maybe you don't notice at first, or, or maybe you do that makes it different. It's a little bit more, it's like kind of minimalism plus kind of philosophy. And, and, uh, I, I think my head is pretty chaotic. I think, you know, my, my it's, I'm a very messy person. And uh, I think minimalism to me is, is, is kind of like an ideal state, but <laughs> I also have that kind of, I, I, I want to kind of try to introduce that warm reality and, and, you know, realize mm-hmm. it's, it can't all be perfect all the time. So, so that begs the question then, Corey, what is your colorful stripe on the inside? Oh, each project. We do it individually. We've tried to... No, you, oh, Corey me? Grosser's colorful stripe. Oh. Yeah, I think it goes all the way back to <laughs> Halloween costumes. You have this like dress up personality. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I try. I hope it's my smile. You know, I... Um, ah, that's I hope, good. That's uh, a good one. You know, I can be serious about business, of course, and I can be very serious about design. But in the end, you know, I, I think it is uh, this business, like every business maybe is really in the end about people. And, and I think you mm-hmm. have to be nice, you know, be nice to people. And, and uh, I, I think a lot of our clients, you know, I think of them as friends and, and, or at least very close to friends. And I really, I think our studio culture is, is one of, you know, we, we're serious and, and and our style is is serious, but we're I think in general a happy and and a friendly bunch, and it's really important that that's how the studio operates and that's how our team works and 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 I hope that the world kind of feels that. Well, I think that's admirable. I want to get a sense of this is maybe more pragmatic than personality, but in the studio, how does the project flow? Can you give us an overview of the process? Yeah, a little bit. How do you arrive and edit your ideas into proposals and then 
into finished projects. I think we've made a pretty big jump in the type of projects we do and just how busy it's, it is. We're still a very small team. But in the early days, you know, I students out of Art Center or, or other places would come and they would stay for a year. And it was it was kind of like, you know, like other studios that do furniture, I suppose, where it was basically young designers kind of helping the projects along. And, you know, but I was involved in every minute decision that was ever made. And it's different now because that's not responsible. It's not possible the way to work on all of these different projects at all of these different scales and expect that I could do a good job, you know. So, you know, about five years ago, I, I changed the studio to more of an associate's model. So now we have, you know, I have a great team and they're very skilled. They're very talented. And each kind of person has their own specialty, I would say. So now my my job is different. My job is kind of, of course, is to be the face of the studio and to try to close deals and, and do that business part of it, but also to keep kind of the creative direction and these aesthetic philosophies and the quality that and try to kind of control that everything that goes out the door that we're happy with and that we're proud of. And, you know, it's it's um, so that's kind of how my role has changed. So it's an interesting question for me. Because my job function or my, you know, my role has changed a lot. So a lot of it is, I think, working with my team and making sure that the things that we do are really good for the client. And they're also, you know, they're also, they fit us and, and, and that we're, we're all a good match and that we're all, we think of our clients as collaborators and partners, you know, but we look for synergy between the parties. So I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, it's a lot about reviewing work. I work in a very iterative way, meaning like I like to see things. I'm not really good at imagining everything in my head and kind of figuring it all in my head. I think my talent really is in my eyes. So I have to see things to kind of decide things, which I think for my team can be quite frustrating. And and also probably it costs the studio a lot of money because we have to spend a lot of time making drawings and renderings and diagrams to make these decisions that to me are are often very visual. I strongly believe that design, it's a lot of things, but it is also still a visual art form. And I think the way you perceive things, the way you see things and feel things, I think are super important. And that that's the way I see my role. And that's kind of how I suppose projects kind of work and flow through our studio. Is there something about the process that still, after all these years, hasn't gotten completely worked out? Like that still drives you absolutely crazy or poses a challenge every time or keeps you awake at night with worry or are you pretty dialed in now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever really no, dialed definitely, in. But. Definitely, definitely <laughs> not dialed in. That's an interesting question. I suppose if we're just talking about design, I'm very confident in our, in our abilities as a studio. So I don't worry about the quality of the finished product. So I know if we're getting mm. a project, if a project comes into the studio, I know that when it goes out the door, that we will all be happy with it. I have no problem, and I can't believe I'm saying this uh, on air, so to speak, but if a project isn't right, I'll call the client and say, I'm sorry, it's not right. I'm going to have to give it to you in two days, even if they're mad. And I've done that several times because I, I really care about design, you know, and, and I think my team cares about design. And if, if you come to us, we're a small team, we're friendly, but we are going to make it as best as we possibly can and and it won't move out the door in, until it's ready. So that's, that can be frustrating. I think with architecture in particular, 
one of the challenges that I think we face as a team is, I guess, this idea of what they call value engineering, VE, meaning it's like uh, you have money for a hamburger, but you want filet. And then the misconception is it's the designer's job to make filet out of hamburger, but it's not like filet is filet and it costs what filet costs and hamburger costs what hamburger costs. And you can have a, we can make you a fancy hamburger if you like, but we can't, you know, we're not magicians. So a lot of it is, especially in architecture, a lot of it is driven by budget. That's one of the hardest things for us. It's, and, and it's also like trying to teach clients the expectation of like, I, I understand what you want, but you can't have exactly what you want unless you're willing to pay for it. We can't, mm. You know, we we can't make magic out of out of something. So that's a challenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel you. Kind of makes me think of like knockoff furniture, where it's like there's somebody out there who will totally produce that for you at a cheaper cost, but like at what real cost? Like, you know, it falls apart in a year, or it's really uncomfortable, and it's, you know, you you get what you pay for. Well, yeah, and it undermines yeah. original design in in a big way economically. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a hot button topic, yeah. right? I think people probably don't realize, you know, let's say we might design 50 products, 50 pieces of furniture to get three of them to market, right? And that also goes for the companies, you know, some of this R&D to make new products is can be very expensive. It's very time consuming and it takes a lot of effort. And I think sometimes that gets undermined by, you know, furniture that's, that's, you know, copied. And also if you make a portion of your living off of royalties, you know, you're really conscious of that. You know, if, if Eames designed something in 1955 or whatever, you know, I want the Eames things and, and we won't put, you know, a copy of an Eames chair in a project that would never happen in our studio because it just, it circumvents the process and it's, it's almost a self-defeating kind of idea. Oh, very self-defeating. Uh, yeah. And that happens yeah. all the time. Yeah. I know. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a restaurant and I have to turn the chair upside down and know if oh I'm sitting gosh. on a knockoff or not. <laughs> oh, I, do I do that too. I do that too. The waiter's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just checking this chair. I do it constantly. I always am so excited about Emiko though, because they like stamp the back of their chair. You don't even need to flip it over. You know what you're right. sitting in. <laughs> right, right. You know right away. Yeah. I, I think there's this, you know, there's an important idea here. Like, you know, I don't think, I don't think design should just be for people, you know, with money in any way. But, you know, if, if you want an original thing or you really want design, perhaps you have to save up for it a little bit or just put some money aside or, you know, find something that's a little bit cheaper from your favorite designer or whatever. But, you know, that, I think that that can be important. This kind of idea of, okay, I really want this. I really want this piece of design and I'm going to save up for it. And then I'm going to keep it for a long time. I mean, that in the end is really what sustainability is all about, right? If I keep a chair or I hand a chair down to my kids and I've had it for 50 years, there's nothing more sustainable than that. No recycled product can be more sustainable than that. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And some of my favorite objects in my house were my grandmother's. And they just have this like sort of, they have a vintage vibe because they were my grandmother's, but then they were my grandmother's. So they have a personal connection to me. And then they also give my decor this sort of more timeless aesthetic as opposed to something that's super trendy and disposable. So I think it just adds depth. Yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. um, 
I think Don Norman would call that like your reflective memory. So part of the value of the object is based on your history with it or where it came from or where you found it. And that, that can be, that can be a very, uh, a very important, it it does build emotional connections between us and our things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about goals. You've designed lots of things, and now you're opening an office in Dubai, uh, which is very exciting. But is there a goal out there that you haven't yet realized, and what is it? Yeah, so what we're trying to do, because we have these three phases to the studio, we're basically trying to we're trying to help brands and companies, you know, as a creative force, meaning, I think the future of our studio is maybe we design your space and we design some products for you and then we do your catalog, you know, and, and a little bit more of a holistic approach to design. It's super important. Like we call in the studio, we say it's multidisciplinary, but lots of studios say they're multidisciplinary. So we're kind of using more of this term about being a holistic design studio. And so the projects that I think we're looking for, and I think what'll happen hopefully over the next five years is we'll get more and more types of projects like that. You know, we've never done a, we've never done a restaurant. And I think that would be a really good project for us if we can get to design the menu and, you know, and maybe we can design the flatware. And, and so any of these projects that I say are, are more holistic, I think in the coming years to hint ahead, I think you'll see more hospitality projects with us and, I, I think you might see us do work in the hotel industry. I have a personal passion about the airline industry. So, you know, we're kind of looking for ways to to tackle aircraft interiors and, and projects like that. So anyway, I, I think that's that's where we're trying as a team, we're trying to move the studio into I always see us as a small team, but you know, working on maybe more holistic projects. So I know you're very connected with your work and you and your work are kind of one and the same, but do you have any personal goals? Oh, I think, you know, my main personal goal is to be the best dad I can be. I would Mm -hmm. say, I think, you know, I want my, my kids to grow up happy and, and, you know, fulfilled. And I think, I think that's one of my biggest personal goals. And, uh, you know, I'm super focused on, I, I, um, that, that's just kind of the way my life is now. So that, that's, you know, seriously important to me. Yeah. I also want to, you know, I think I want to try to live as, uh, as balanced a life as I, as I possibly can kind of trying to manage all of these different, different things that are going on. So, yeah, I think those are, those are my two personal goals, I would say. Those are good uh, goals. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so speaking of projects that you have coming up, is there a new project you have that you want our listeners to know about? Yeah, we so this month is Orgatech, which is the the big European contract furniture show. So we're introducing a new product for a Belgian company called Buzzy Space called Buzzy Mood. Mm-hmm which is an acoustic product. Uh, we had a little preview at Neocon in June and it's launching officially this month. Is this the, it's like wall panels that are acoustic panels, but it's like moss. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they, there's basically this small moss that's, um, they're like little balls and they're harvested from the forest, the, the, the ground and forest in Scandinavia. And 
they, these little balls have kind of acoustic properties and you'll see them in offices. Like you'll have, like you'll walk into an office and you'll see a green wall and it might be made from these, but these, this is one of the first products that you can buy as a product that has, you know, the moss integrated. And it's pretty cool because it, it not only does it have acoustic properties, but it also has humidity control oh. properties. So it kind of, it helps you figure out if your air quality has the right, if you have the right humidity. And in Orgatech, now we can, we're introducing different fabric panels and, and other types of panels. So you, if you, if you're not into moss or kind of want to mix and match, I think it's going to do really well in the marketplace. I'm hopeful. Well, that's exciting. So where can our listeners find you on the web and social media and keep tabs on all of your upcoming projects? Yeah, sure. So it's pretty easy. It's CoreyGrocer.com and our Instagram is at CoreyGrocer. That is pretty easy. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all your colorful, colorful stripes with us. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I'm super, I'm super psyched to do this and I'm really, I'm kind of honored to be I know you guys have a long list of really amazing personalities on this podcast, and I, you know, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to share a bit. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you for sharing. Also, thank you for sharing your personal story with us because I always feel like, you know, work is just one part of our lives. So when we can kind of integrate work and personal, we can get a better holistic view of of how a creative has to operate in the world. Well, I think you guys do a really good job pulling it out of people, too. So thank you. <laughs> awesome. I really, really like that he grew up in a home that celebrated Halloween costumes. Halloween is so fun. I have bittersweet feelings about <laughs> Halloween, like mixed feelings, because it's my birthday. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's wonderful and exciting but also terrifying and reminds me that i'm gonna die so there's why that. does it remind you you're gonna die <laughs> well every birthday means you're a year older oh wow you just got way morbid <laughs> well halloween is is you know there's zombies and ghosts and it is death, death oriented sure. <laughs> yeah it's it's you know but makes it fun it's fun death so it's not as bad <laughs> i guess Anyway, yes, I thought it was really fun that they did that. And I love that they won trophies for it. Well, I, I agree with him, though, that that making as a kid is an important activity because it really unlocks channels in your brain. It helps you feel a tangible sense of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Getting trophies is awesome. But sleeping in a boat bed that your granddad built. That's so rad. This is so cool. It's way better than one of those like plastic beds. Way better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it had a built-in toy box. It's so cool. I know. And his granddad built it. I know. Oh, I love everything about that. I do too. I, I really appreciated him talking about the shift in his thinking, not only on a personal level, but how it affected him as you know a professional, as a designer, running his own business, but also as a teacher. You know, I think we tend to think a lot of times when people have their own businesses that they are their brand, right? But we don't think too much about like everybody else and how them as a person and how they think and their thought patterns and their changes and emotions affect how they live their life. And that bleeds into what they do for, you know, for a living and how they approach every single decision they make in their whole life. 
Absolutely. I'd be really interested to do an informal survey of designers and creatives and figure out how many of them were w- way too hard on themselves and had to had to find that sense of balance. I I know we can be extra critical because that's what we're training ourselves to do to to have that, you know, critical eye. You know, he said this is a a breakthrough after some breakdowns that he got to only about five years ago. And Mm -hmm. I totally had to do the same thing. And I talked about it in school, but no, I didn't really arrive at that until I went through my own sort of personal and professional collapses and divorce and therapy and all of that. But I feel like we should be teaching our design students how to not accidentally become too critical of themselves. Yeah, it's kind of a... (laughs) It's a balance, though, right? Because a lot of times when you're in your late teens, early 20s, or even mid 20s, you're still super tied to ego Mm -hmm. and caring what everybody else thinks. Yes. And so there's part of that that like you want to kind of curb the ego, but also help with the critical thinking but boost confidence at the same time. It's very, it's, it's a, I mean, teachers, man, they just have it really tough. They've got to balance all of these things because kids at that age have a lot going on in their brain. Yeah. I mean, parents too. Yeah. Teachers have a parental role in that way and parents have a professorial role at the same time. So Corey's doing both. And I was really touched. You could hear his voice soften when he talked about his goal being a good dad. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it was so cute. Yeah, I know. It's so sweet. And but it's I mean, it's nice to hear him say that, that that's a personal goal. I think, you know, we as parents, I just feel like we all want to be the best we can be for our kids. But we don't really talk about that. We just do, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But I think it is important to get out there and tell people like, hey, like, this is really important to me. Like, I care about my kids, but I want to make sure that I'm giving them like the best life that they can have, but also teaching them all of these important life lessons. And that's something I want to be good at. That's my job as a as a human. How are you doing? I think you're doing pretty good. How am I doing? Yeah. I what's, don't know. What's your scorecard, Jamie? <laughs> I, I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> are you mom, mom extraordinary? Uh, no, definitely not. I gave myself a, a low bar. And I was like, okay, if I can, if this kid doesn't die in the first five years, I'm successful, right? Because you just need to keep them alive at that point. But then like, it starts to get more complicated because there's all these emotions and all of this other stuff. And then it becomes like, society has influence and culture has influence. And then it's just like, holy crap. So we're all kind of just doing the best we can do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's all a case specific kind of deal too. Like he was saying he doesn't he doesn't want to issue any dogma or formulas to his design students because he doesn't believe that like if you take A and follow through B and C that you're going to automatically get, you know, the right answer. He's right. just trying to help his students unlock their own problem-solving skills and creative expression and parenting. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, but there's a lot of parallels in parenting as well. It, and nobody can tell you the right way to parent your kids. Yeah. They'll all try. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> and they'll all you judge you. more opinions <laughs> and more advice than you ever thought you could get in your life. But yeah, you can only really do what you can do. 
I think, you know, most people are really trying to just make the best decision or the decision they think is the best at the time for their kids. And sometimes, you know, it's difficult for the kids, but also difficult for students to, to you know, have the confidence to trust their own intuition or follow their own path and not ask for a formula mm-hmm. because everybody wants a formula. Like, oh, how did you become successful? Tell me your your road, like A, B, C, D, what did you do? And they think if they replicate that, then they'll then become successful as well. And maybe they would, but like for the most part, we all have our own path and our own experiences and we have to follow that. And that's hard because you don't know what lies ahead. There is no formula. He didn't know he was going to open an office in Dubai. Yeah. I love stories that begin with a phone call where they thought it might have been a prank. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Who said that? Was it Josh Higgins? And he was like, the Obama called me. And I was like, right. (laughs) Like the guy from from Obama's office called and was like, hey, we want you to design this thing. And he almost hung up on him. (laughs) (laughs) You guys should go back and listen to that episode. It was a good one. Yeah, definitely. Anyway. I thought that was a great conversation and I appreciated him being honest. And also, I just think it's good advice to like follow your your path and, and I don't know, be open. Seek balance. Don't be afraid to fail. How many cliches can you come up with? No, I kidding. don't know. I, I could go all day. <laughs> I think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please go to cleverpodcast.com to see images of Corey's work. Or you can click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're in the mood, please rate and review us. It helps us in ways that are more profound than you will ever know. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, a.k.a. 2VDE Media with editing by Jenny Josephson and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.